You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Gabriela Gonzalez, creator of HaskellForAll.com, as well as the DAL programming language. We talk about how non-mainstream programming technologies like languages and frameworks get adopted, or don't, in industry. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, non-mainstream programming. Okay, Gabriella, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for having me on here too. I appreciate it. Awesome. So you created the DAL programming language, which is the only programming language I know of that is not a theorem prover, but is a total. Do you know of any others? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I guess, I don't know if Idris would fall in that category because like people don't really use Idris. I mean, you could, but I think it's more just like a kind of a programming language. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Idris is like, you can opt into totality checking in some places, but I don't think the whole language is total, is it? Yeah, I don't remember. Like, I forget which is the default, but like, it can be total though. Sure, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to explain what totality is and what DAL is for those who are not <laughs> familiar? <laughs> so totality is a shorthand for a total functional programming. And it's a style of programming where you try to make programs that never fail. I mean, like, the, well... I don't know what's the exact precise definition, but that's how, how I mean it. It's like programs that can basically never fail. So like by that, I mean like they don't hang, they don't throw exceptions, they don't crash. Like they just they just always succeed for some notion of success. Totality is sometimes used as a shorthand for the absence of Turing completeness, although the two are not exactly synonymous. I think probably the easiest way to explain this is like to explain what was the motivation behind Doll in the first place. Sure. The way it all started was actually I would listen to people talking in, like on social media, and a very common argument you would hear like on Hacker News or wherever is somebody would say my configuration files are getting large and unmaintainable. The classic example would be like Kubernetes configuration files, and I really wish they had like they were like done in an actual programming language because then I could take advantage of things like you know functions to reduce repetition or uh, types to, to, to mitigate errors, or tests, or other things like that. And inevitably, someone will counter with, like, well, I don't want my my configuration file to be Turing complete. And that's kind of like, oh, Turing complete is this kind of a red herring. But really, like, kind of when they say that, they, what they really mean is, like, I don't want my configuration files to do things like, you know, have side effects, like delete files, make database calls, or crash. Or hang, right? I mean, hang is kind of the big one because, like, if you're if you're doing a build and you're like, I want to generate my configuration files, and it hangs, that's an awful thing to try and debug. <laughs> so, Doll was created as kind of a thought experiment to see, like, would people be okay with configuration files being programmable if they were total? And the answer is, for some people, yes. That was actually like the thing that got them over the edge to actually use it as a programmable configuration language. And yeah, so that, that was the basic origin behind Doll. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you ever think about using it for things other than configuration file generation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, actually, this has been an idea I had been mulling around uh, in my head for other reasons. I think the very first time I got this idea was um, not in the context of configuration files, but actually for distributed programming. Because, like, it feels like in distributed programming, what they really need is some way to make code first class. So you can, like, ship it over the wire in such a way that that is a safe thing to do. Everyone's kind of like familiar with the dangers of remote code execution, right? 
But I thought, you know, what if you could actually just make that safe? And that, again, goes hand in hand with totality, right? If you can make the program, like, safe, secure, never fails, or even, like, restrict the set of permissible side effects, then, like, you could just use it as a distributed programming language where you could just, like, ship code to be executed on some other box. Like, the classic example of this would be, like, Hadoop, right? Of course, in Hadoop, it does it, like, in a more low-tech way, right? That you want to, like, run a, a, you know, a big data job. You, like, build some jar and you ship that jar to the various machines, and the reason you do that is because you would like to be able to bring the code to the data because the, the data is typically larger than the code in those scenarios. Although that's not always the case. Like briefly when I worked at Twitter, there was one case where we, when we were debugging some slow analytics jobs, we found some cases where the, the jars were getting so massive due to people not like curating their dependencies well, that they ended up shipping, the jar was actually larger than the data it was processing on some machines sometimes. <laughs> How big a jar are we talking there? Is that like multi-gigabyte or? Yeah, yeah, multi-gigabytes. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought you were doing Haskell at Twitter. Do I remember that right? Uh, no, I tried to get Haskell introduced at Twitter unsuccessfully, but I learned a lot about programming language evangelism along the way from my failed attempt to introduce it there. Tell me more. I'm, I'm very curious about that topic. Oh, yeah. So uh, actually, I have, I have a talk I gave about this for people who, are, who want the long version of this. It's called uh, How to Market Haskell to Mainstream Programmers. You can find it on YouTube. So when I was describing my experiences trying to get Haskell adopted at Twitter to one of my colleagues at uh, Awake Security, now Arista Networks, now acquired by Arista Networks, my colleague said, you need to read this book called Crossing the Chasm because like everything you're saying like that you've learned is like goes hand in hand with what this book is saying. And I did read it. And surely enough, the book like, basically recapitulated like what I had had to learn the hard way. And the book was written not for, you know, programming languages. It was actually written for startups. You know, you're trying to get a new tech, new disruptive technology introduced and you want to go mainstream. And a lot of the challenges startups face are, are also the same challenges that fledgling open source technologies or open source languages face too. It's like trying to get mainstream, you know, blue collar programmers to adopt their, their favorite pet technology. And um, I th there's lo there are lots of insights from the book, but if I had to like pick one insight from the book, it's this: it's that you have to understand that like there are two types of adopters: there are early adopters and mainstream adopters, and their needs are fundamentally opposed from one another. Meaning that like things you do to make your technology more palatable to early adopters will actually make it less palatable to mainstream adopters. So you have to have the foresight to actually build the technology for mainstream adopters and know what that entails even knowing that it will actually displease the early adopters. So like the classic example of how their needs are opposed is this. So like an early adopter, they love to be on the bleeding edge because they like to feel that they have a secret weapon. So the less people that use the technology, the more that they like it, because then they feel like they have a step up on the competition because they're using something that nobody else is using. And vice versa, mainstream adopters are the opposite, right? The more people that use it, the more they like the technology. So anything you, you do to make the technology more mainstream will cause early adopters to lose interest in the technology because they no longer have their you know secret weapon that gives them the step up on the other people anymore. Interesting. Although I guess there's a little bit of a catch-22 there in the sense that if it's the number of people using it that is something that causes early adopters to not like it, presumably the people who would comprise those large number of people would be early adopters themselves, right? So it's like at some point you get enough early adopters that it becomes too large for more early adopters to be interested. It's not like a binary division between like early adopters and mainstream adopters, but but for the purpose of the discussion, you can really treat them as like two mutually exclusive groups of people. 
And that's actually what makes it very hard to go mainstream in the sense that you have like, you have this chicken and egg problem where mainstream, so not only are early adopters have opposite needs from mainstream adopters, but they also make very poor references for mainstream adopters because they're not speaking the same language as mainstream adopters. For example, like let, if you ask like an early adopter for Haskell to try to market Haskell to other people, they'll say something like, oh, it's this strongly typed, you know, purely functional language with laziness and like Hindley Milner type inference. And those are not at all the words that mainstream adopters are looking for, for like when you're marketing a language. So again, they're just like, so like the, the evangelism that early adopters use actually turns off mainstream adopters. So you have this chicken and egg problem where you need to get mainstream adopters to use the language and evangelize it, but they don't want to even try it until other mainstream adopters try it. And so like getting that that virtuous cycle going is very difficult in, in the main challenge that the book addresses. Yeah. The momentum question, like the, you know, the the chicken and egg of like, I don't want to use it. I don't want to be the first, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be an early adopter. Definitely resonates with me. Um, one thing that always amuses me is whenever somebody's talking about some technology that's not mainstream yet in, you know, whatever context, functional programming or otherwise, um, I think actually a good example today would probably be Rust. I bet if you go back, you would find people saying this um, in the early days of Rust. A really common thing that people bring up, and it's it's not wrong, it just always confuses me why people would always feel the need to bring this up, is like, well, there's no ecosystem yet. It's like, yeah, of course. I mean, or, or, or like there's a very small ecosystem. Yes, it's like that's what not mainstream means. If there, if there were a big ecosystem, that would be because there's tons of people using it already, and then we wouldn't be talking about it because everyone would just already know it. So like, it's never insightful to say that, but people inevitably do say it like somebody's always going to bring it up. Well, I, I don't want to use X because there's no ecosystem or there's a small ecosystem or something like that. And it, I think to your point, it it's sort of revealing about the mindset where it's like, they're not interested in it and they're just telling you why they're like, well, I'm not interested in this because there's no ecosystem. Or maybe that's one reason, but maybe that's even just a proxy for because there's not enough social proof. There's not enough like other people using it already. Yeah, and like I don't want to give the impression that like mainstream adopters are selfish. Like they only want to like use the ecosystem when all the work is done. Uh, quite the opposite. So like once mainstream adopters get into a language, they will actually be the language's strongest champions because the best way to explain the difference in mindset between early adopters and mainstream adopters is that when early adopters evaluate technologies, the lens through which they evaluate the technology is is this technology the best in class for my project. And that's that's the that's the criterion they use for, for adoption. And for mainstream adopters, the way they evaluate technologies is, is this technology the best technology for the group of people that I identify as being as belonging to, kind of like my market? And even if it's not the best choice for my specific project, that doesn't matter to them. Like they, they view themselves as being part of a greater whole. And when they make decisions, they do it through that through the lens of that greater whole. So like they feel like they're not just adopting the technology for themselves, but when they adopt it, they, they feel like they're adopting it on behalf of that greater pool of people that they belong to. And so that's why for them, they're not going to adopt this technology unless they feel like they can very confidently recommend it to their peers that they identify with. You know what that reminds me of is the idea of like, how will I explain this choice to my friends? I remember very early on, I worked at a startup and we chose to use Perl for web development. This is like 2006. Perl was like really, you know, a common, like big choice back then, but it was like kind of 
by the time the startup went out of business and I was looking for a, <laughs> another job, it had kind of like fallen out of favor relative to when we'd gotten into it. And I remember being asked on that job, hey, why would you choose Pearl? Like, what's, you know, defend that choice. Like, what, what, what were you thinking when you made that decision? And I was like, well, there was a big piece of open source software that did a lot of what we wanted and it was written in Pearl. So we used that as the start of our code base and kind of built on top of that. And I remember the response was, okay, that's, that's about the only acceptable answer that you could have come up with. And I, I remember thinking like, huh, that's not how I evaluate technologies. Like if, if somebody else is like, I decided to use X, and this is like before I'd even gotten to functional programming or Elm or Haskell or any of these non-mainstream you know, languages, lesser used. I remember thinking that that was so different than my mindset for evaluating things where I'm like, well, I just, I have these needs for this thing I want to build. And then like, what's out there? What are my options? And they all have trade-offs, but explaining my decision or like defending it to somebody else, you know, as like as part of my identity just didn't really occur to me. But I, I take your point that not everybody thinks that way and that's fine. But I want to again, so go back to like the fact that the reason why mainstream adopters are, can be your biggest champions is because, so they also tend to be very career oriented. So in the sense that like once they adopt the technology, they want to feel like that they can build a career on the technology. And so when, when they make the decision collectively to adopt the technology, they will do whatever it takes to defend that technology against uh, challengers to that technology. They will like try to build out an ecosystem, build a documentation because they're trying to put down competitive alternatives because they want to have a solid foundation to build upon. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I also wonder about people's motivations. That's really interesting to think about. I definitely have talked before about you know, plenty of different people about sort of the sense of like tribalism in programming where like I'm reminded of like very early on in the Elm days, Evan who created Elm was uh, people were always saying like, Hey, what, what should we call ourselves? Should we call ourselves like Elmers or like Arborists or like Elmists? And Evan was like, I just like Elm programmer because we shouldn't have an identity around our tools. It's just a tool. Like if it's, if you have a project and you think Elm's a good tool for that project, then cool, use it. But that shouldn't become your identity. And I think that's interesting in that it's, it's an uncommon viewpoint. Uh, it seems like almost like the, the path of least resistance is to form an identity around the tools that we use. And uh, whether that be a mainstream or non mainstream <laughs> tool, um, like I definitely know people who, uh, several people who, you know, have like tattoos of programming languages that they like. I mean, you don't even need like a tattoo. Like just think of like the person who's like, who the kind of person who will list like, you know, I don't know, Akka or like on the resume, for example, right? It's just kind of like, this is the the stack I want to be using for my career or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not even limited languages. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, like you look in the like front end world and you've got like React versus Vue.js versus, you know, Angular and Svelte. Like those are all JavaScript frameworks, but people have very strong opinions about, you know, which one is maybe not just the right tool for, or, or the best choice for whatever their particular project is. But just like you said, something, something bigger than that. Like, it's just like, this is, this is what's good. And, and I want the world to know. And yeah, I guess people do make investments to perhaps motivated not just by like wanting it to exist for the sake of building a nice thing but also just for the sense of like you see my thing is really good and, and now i've got you know one more reason to to prove it so that's very interesting and you'd think as like reasonably analytical technologists that we might be uh or, or like to think of ourselves as like able to identify these patterns and like, you know, transcend them or something. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're all humans. So <laughs> it kind of makes sense. 
Yeah, it is like fundamentally a tribal behavior in mainstream programmers. Like the idea is the whole concept is like basically strength in numbers, right? So like we can leverage economies of scale if we all collectively agree on like we're all going to be using this one particular technology as it also is not necessarily like one particular technology, like it can be a whole a stack that goes together. Like a common thing you'll see in the functional programming world is like, you know, the Haskell plus Nick stack, like those two things very commonly correlate together or like maybe like Java, Python, Docker, for example, that's like another like constellation of technologies that tend to go together. So it's not just like one particular thing, but like, so like, this is why it's actually not like one of the things that the, one concept the book introduces is the notion of a market. So like a market is a group of people who reference each other when making decisions about technologies. They like all go to the same conferences. They will tend to refer each other, hire each other. And so like the reason those technologies correlate is because they all tend to belong to this one market, this pool of developers who all kind of like are always talking to each other and agreeing on like, this is the way we do things. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I never I never thought about the, I don't know, sort of like the, the technologies that that are sort of not officially coupled to, but yeah, there's like a constellation effect. Like I think about... If you're using Oracle as your database, you're not talking to that from like Rust or like Golang. Like you're definitely talking to that with like Java or C Sharp or like C++. I mean, another example would be like Node and MongoDB. Exactly. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and yeah, there's 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 no technical reason why that should need to be the case. And And maybe in some cases, there's a technical explanation like, there's just really great MongoDB drivers for Node and not for Java, but I don't think that's it. That's <laughs> it's it's yeah. It's, I mean, it's a cultural thing. Yeah, and again, like the real reason is because the people who are adopting Node and MongoDB are that that market is like people who go to hackathons, for example, like young coders who are all referencing each other for making decisions. Yeah, I mean, I, I know like in MongoDB's heyday, which I think we're past at this point. That that was true. I, I think MongoDB and Node.js were both kind of like cool early adopter type technologies when like Mongo was getting big. I actually wonder what the story is today. Like how much I would be surprised if that's changed. I bet it's still a lot of like Node.js backends talking to Mongo databases. It's certainly Node.js is well past the early adopter stage at this point, which reminds me of another phenomenon that's interesting, which is I definitely talk to some people who, or I, I say talk to really, I read their comments on Hacker News, but they seem to hold in their heads the belief or the implicit belief that mainstream like what's mainstream today is somehow going to be that way indefinitely flying and what i mean by this is like if somebody makes a new thing they'll say like well you're never going to be popular like x you're never going to catch up to y um and you know from a probability basis sure any individual technology is unlikely to do that because you know it's just it's it's rare that like technology does go from non-mainstream to mainstream but it obviously happens. I mean, like we're we're looking at that happening right now with Rust for sure. I mean, Rust was completely obscure; it did not exist. Is not, you know, doesn't compile to JVM, doesn't compile to JavaScript. It's not, you know, piggybacking off of an existing popular language. It goes straight to machine code, and yet it's becoming mainstream. Arguably, you could say it already is mainstream. Maybe not. We could be conservative and say it's maybe not quite mainstream, but it's definitely approaching that very rapidly and seems pretty much inevitable at this point that if it's not already that it will be a mainstream programming language there's a way you can tell if a language is is mainstream so typically the way a language goes mainstream there are a few things that you need to kickstart things but let's say you find like some foothold something you're very good at and when i say very good at i mean not just very good i mean the best at 
So it's such that you, know, you are irreplaceable for that particular use case, right? So like in this case, it might be like for Rust, I mean, this is not exact, this is not a market, but like, you know, everyone understands like Rust allows you to have memory safety without garbage collection. Basically, that, that is its thing. And there's a market that's somewhat, I, I'm not exactly familiar with the market is, but that's part of the pitch. So once you find that foothold, that mainstream adopters say like, this is the best technology for this use case, then what will happen is, what you will see is that they will, remember how I said mainstream adopters are your, are your greatest champions? So they will go to back for technology and force people to support it. So like an example would be like, let's say you, you, you adopt Rust again, because you need like a memory safe, non-GC language then you will go to your CI, like your dev prod team and say, we need you to support Rust in CI and we cannot, and, and not using Rust is not an option. Like we have to use it because it's not replaceable for our use case here. And then, so like, so when you see people start to impose upon other people to support a language, that's when, you know, it's starting to go mainstream. Like a great example of this would be like AWS SDKs, for example, right? So like telling AWS, we need to have a Rust SDK for, for AWS. It can't be like, you know, this third party thing contributed by the Rust uh, community. Like it has to be officially supported. Like that's, that's a perfect sign of a language going mainstream as an example. Interesting. I never thought of that, but it makes sense. Yeah. Like the third party tools that are, you know, have no relation to the project that, that feel obliged to adopt it. Or like another one probably would be it's like source code formatting as like a default, like syntax, yeah, like, like syntax highlighting or IDE plugins. Yeah, exactly. Like when those start showing up without you having to install anything, that's a, definitely a sign. Yeah, that's that's also interesting to think about as sort of like a measure of, <laughs> of mainstreamness. We had a joke recently. The L in the programming language uh, was the answer in a New York Times crossword. It was like programming language named after a tree and it was, you know, L. And we're like, well, I guess New York Times crossroad, that's, that's got to be something, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that is sort of increasingly surprising to me as, as I've uh, like looked at, I don't know, I, I've spent a lot of time like talking about programming languages and like their adoption, like analyzing it and stuff like that. One thing that's, that keeps surprising me more and more is just how little whether or not a language takes off seems to have to do with like how good the language is at solving like one particular problem as opposed to how well it it seems to how do i put this i know exactly what you're saying i I can complete that thought go for it please (laughs) so the way i like to, to explain this is i say there's no such thing as a general purpose programming language and any language that markets itself as such is making a huge mistake the terminology the book uses is that you want to address a specific market, which you can also think of as addressing like a specific application domain or a specific use case. And, and, it's, and when I say that, you're like you're trying to build out an entire product, like an entire experience. Let's say like if you are trying to support, I don't know, like web development, right? It's not just about providing the language. It's about like the packages and the documentation and the IDE experience and the deployment tools. And all of that has to be very good. That is the, the complete use case. And that use case, like you can, is, is, or, well, that market, those markets are always organic. So like, it goes back to how, like those tribal lines that people draw in the programming ecosystem, those already exist. You cannot create a market. It's just something that exists before your language was ever created, but you can tailor your language to a specific market. And like by identifying that market's needs and addressing it to that, you have a much greater chance of going mainstream and a very common mistake, which new technologies make is trying to chase too many markets. In fact, the way the, the, the way the book describes this is, is what they use startup terms. So they say like it's the difference between being sales oriented 
and being market oriented. So sales oriented is basically like I will build whatever gets me like this million dollar customer, right? And that's and like even if it's even only even if only that customer needs that feature, and that's a recipe for failure, right? Uh, what you want to be doing is building features targeted towards one specific market and only that market, even if it means having to turn down sales that might be potentially lucrative in other markets. Because if you if you deliver a half baked experience to each market, then you will never go viral. You'll never go mainstream. Whereas if you focus, because like so, startups and open source projects have the exact same problem, which is that they don't have enough time, money, or resources to do anything, right? Like especially open source projects, like it's all free labor <laughs> that we all do in our free time. So like you really have to pick your battles very carefully, and you can't build that high quality experience if you're trying to chase too many potential use cases. So like going back to Doll, for example, right? In Doll, there are many possible use cases. Like some people are using it for like like for Kubernetes. Some people are using it for like they were trying to use it for, like as the JSON for code. Other people are using it for stuff like bibliographies. And like we just had to focus on focus in on one particular market and be like, we're gonna do this for ops, like configuration files like Kubernetes, CloudFormation templates, and so forth, and make that as high quality as possible and not get distracted by all these other potential use cases. And that made it possible to build a much higher quality experience for that market, which made it easier for, I, I wouldn't say Doll has gone mainstream yet, but I think it's like gotten a lot closer than many other configuration formats. Yeah, I, I wish there were a term for that. It's, it's some like, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you could like the, the general term for this is like you know, user experience, right? But it's something about, it's, it's, not, it's not just about how capable the tool is, but also like, what does it feel like to use the tool and like the actual experience, including all of the stuff around the actual, like applying the tool to the problem type things. Yeah. And it's not just like how good it is. Like there are lots of like really small touches that you can add to a tool to like communicate to the users. Like you are the intended market. Like I, you, I, you are the person that I have in mind. Like a classic example would be like, like if you're addressing an ops market, like this is one of the mistakes Doll made, is like if you're addressing an ops market, you want to have JSON-like syntax, right? Just be, or or maybe or maybe YAML-like syntax, but more likely JSON-like syntax, because like that they just kind of they identify with that. That like gives them good vibes and such. And regardless of the technical merits of JSON syntax or not, like if you if you add that in, then they then they're like, ah, I feel seen by this tool, and that makes it more likely to adopt it. Okay, so syntax is also an interesting topic when it comes to adoption. I remember, and I actually should I should really talk to somebody who actually was involved with this on one of these episodes, because this is just a hypothesis I have in my head, but I'm piecing this hypothesis together from <laughs> things I've heard and things I've read from different places. But the hypothesis is this. I think that ReasonML, I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, I'm not that familiar with ReasonML. Okay, so Reason is basically, the, the pitch is it's a syntactic layer on top of OCaml that makes OCaml look like JavaScript. There's also a whole like tooling ecosystem around that, which is branded as Rescript now. But the original project of ReasonML was specifically, let's make OCaml look like JavaScript, but be using OCaml as the actual compiler. So the semantics and the libraries are all OCaml. It's just purely syntax. And I think where this is coming from, so this is created by Jordan Walk, who also created React. And I think it's coming in part from his ex initial experience developing React at Facebook and the initial feedback that he got when he proposed it. And I, I can't remember where I heard this. I want to say it was either a Twitter thread or a podcast interview or something. But the story that he told was initially he prototyped out React.js in, I think it was actually standard ML. But uh, he basically was like, okay, um, let me turn this into a you know production thing. He put it in JavaScript. Initially, there was no JSX. There was no templates. It was just plain JavaScript functions. That was the whole React thing. And he made a PR for it and was like, okay, you know, give me some feedback. What do you think of this? 
And a lot of his coworkers at Facebook were like, yeah, this doesn't, I don't know, it's not, it's not doing it for me. And an important piece of context was that at the time, Facebook was really into this PHP templating library where you would have HTML with little inline, you know, template things going on like PHP style. And React, as he originally created it, didn't look like that. It was just function calls, you know, go with a simpler, simpler thing. Um, and so he said, okay, well, what if it looked like this? And he just changed the PR to sort of invent JSX and he didn't actually implement it, just like pretend that it looks like this. Now, what do you think? And people are like, oh yeah, we like that, right? It looks familiar, like you're saying, you know, it's it's like you identify with it, it's, it's, it's comfortable. And then they liked it and then they adopted it. And so then, you know, React comes out and it's got these PHP looking JSX files. And I remember initially there was a lot of community backlash because of that, like a lot of people were saying, like, what is this? This is like you're going back, you're doing old school, like mustache JS templates or something like that, you know, or this looks like PHP or whatever. And, you know, people got over it eventually. But a lot of people were, were kind of, you know, reacting to that from the perspective of, I don't like this. This is not, you know, familiar and comfortable to me. I don't want to do that. I, I want to do, you know, whatever I'm using instead. I can give actually an even more concise example of this. So, like, what, probably one of the most controversial things about Doll is the fact that it formats things using leading commas for, for records instead of trailing commas. And that rubs so many people the wrong way, but like, but functional programmers love it. So there's something, especially Haskell programmers, they love leading comma style. Whereas like people who come from like JavaScript or Python, they hate it. Like it, for them, it just gives them very bad vibes. And like a lot of programming is really just kind of about vibes in, in a sense. A lot of developers have this sort of aesthetic that they've cultivated over their programming career, which is, and that aesthetic is very commonly tied to their market. So things that make them feel warm and fuzzy. And so like learning what is the aesthetic for a given market can do a whole lot to make the market more likely to adopt that, a particular tool. Because every developer has like this vision of like, what is my ideal development experience like? So leading commas and trailing commas is a, is a funny one. So I have a little story about that. So when I first got into Elm, I had not used any like ML family languages like Elm or Haskell or OCaml or um, standard ML. And so I just reflexively wrote Elm code with trailing commas rather than leading commas. Now you don't, in Elm syntactically, like the parser doesn't accept if you have um, an extra trailing comma at the end of a literal. So like the, the last the last thing in the list has to not have a comma after it. But that was fine. I would just, you know, leave them off. And then one day I was pair programming with someone at work and we got an error and the error message was extremely confusing. And basically what had happened was I'd forgotten a comma at the end of one of those lines. I just didn't notice it. But of course, like when you have an ML style syntax where you're, you know, you call functions without parentheses, you just call them with like spaces. Essentially what I'd done was like I, th those two lines had become one gigantic function call. And so I was getting this huge type mismatch and it was like, what do you mean I'm passing all these arguments? No, I'm not. I'm only passing three arguments. Look at them. They're right there. It's like, no, you're casting seven arguments. So then after that, I was like, okay, now I get it. Like with leading commas, it's just blindingly obvious if you make that mistake. It's just like, oh, there's a hole here. You know, there's a, there's a missing <laughs> comma um, and you can't really make that mistake. But I will say, like, after having adopted Elm format, like the you know, code, code formatting tool, then you get feedback in a different way, which is you save the file. And, you know, if you forgot a comma, the whole the whole line, <laughs> like, scoots up onto the previous line anyway. So for Rock, which is the, the programming language I've been working on, initially, I actually was like, okay, I, I want to do a trailing comma style, both because that's what I was actually more familiar with from, like, back before I got into functional programming, and also because 
I have seen people at like meetups just like take one look at the leading comma syntax and just walk away. Like you said, you know, it's like, they're just like, that's not, that's not my thing. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's like, it's as if you, a person said like, oh, I just walked into the wrong side of town and I need to head back. <laughs> and, and so my, my, my thinking there is like, A, I have a personal aesthetic preference, a slight one for, for trailing commas, but, but B, I think more importantly in my mind, people who are already into functional programming also generally tend to care more about semantics than syntax anyway. And I think they're going to be like, okay, so this is like Henley Milliner type inference. You, you've got isolated side effects. You know, that's what I care about more. Like, I don't, I don't care as much about where the commas go. Fine, whatever. But people outside that community, I think, uh, value more that feeling of like, this looks familiar. This looks, especially if you're coming in and you know it's a functional programming language and that inherently makes it feel like there's some gap, like there's something like weird and different about this. And so maybe if you can lessen that, that's maybe a good thing. I actually found out, I was like, oh, there's actually a parsing problem here. So you, I guess you're familiar with this from, from doll, but like, if you want, if you, if you have indentation sensitivity, which is really common with like lets and like cases in uh, ML syntax by default, it's, it's pretty convenient if you can say like, well, we just have the entire sub-expression indented, like after the equals sign. And if it ever gets outdented, that means we've moved on to the next, you know, declaration. So we actually had to like, end up like doing a lot of special casing in the parser around delimiters can be outdented, but other stuff can't. And like, if it's a closing delimiter and it's outdented, that's allowed. And anyway, so now it, it you know, it, it looks, I like how it looks, but um, it definitely doesn't look like Haskell or Elm or, you know, doll <laughs> because of the leading commas. And it's, it's such a small thing, but you're right. It's, it's a very distinctive marker. Mm-hmm. So going back to reason ML, what I think Jordan's hypothesis was, was OCaml's really good. People don't know it's really good because the syntax is so alien to them. And if we make the syntax be something that is extremely familiar, people will just try it and use it and hopefully like it. I would say that that's a start, but it's definitely not enough. (laughs) Yeah. So I I don't think it's, I mean, I haven't talked to him about it, but I I don't think it's like taken off as much as maybe he would have predicted. Certainly it's got some usage and it's, it's gotten enough usage that as I understand it in the OCaml community, there's now a little bit of a like division among people who use like vanilla OCaml and people who use like reason syntax. But one thing that kind of was a surprising, I don't know, revelation for me out of that. Cause like when I first heard about that, I was like, Oh wow, this is going to be big. Like it's, it's like the repo is github.com slash Facebook slash reason. So it's like, there's a huge social proof in that URL right there. (laughs) It's like, you know, there's this big company that's behind it. The guy who created react created it. OCaml's been around for decades, like it's, you know, b- very battle tested. And I was surprised that that wasn't enough, you know, that like that wasn't enough for it to become like mainstream levels of popularity. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely not enough. This is actually something I talk about that the book talks about crossing the chasm and also my talk, which is that funding or big corporate backing is not enough to go mainstream. Like really the part where you, the part where you go mainstream is when you are the best product for a specific use case. Meaning that there's like you're literally the best in class way of doing it for whatever it is. Like it's not enough to just be like good at something. You have to be the best. Because like you think about like like let's forget programming for a second. Like let's say I were like you know buying I don't know something on buying some household appliance. Right. Typically I might go on to like you know wire cutter or like Reddit buy it for life and say okay like what's the best you know, in this category, I'll just, just get, just get me that basically. Like, that's how most people approach these technologies, right? They're not there to like, you know, become, I don't know, washing machine enthusiasts, right? Course, just, like, yeah. just tell me what the best things to get and, I, and I'll, I'll buy that or the best value or whatever, you, what have you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I buy that. And it's weird because the number of categories of ways that people build software is is very dominated by like a pretty small group of them. It seems like you got your you know web servers, you got your web clients, you've got native clients, and then games like are, are kind of their own category. Those four right there, I think that was four. I wasn't really counting, but I mean that's that's such a huge fraction of all the programming that gets done in the world. And like, okay, so maybe another one is like embedded. I'd say there are actually a, a lot more categories. Like some of that can come to mind would be like um, data science, compilers, distributed programming. Now, to be fair though, like as a percentage of all the programming that gets done, I mean, maybe this is just my bias of my own personal career and like where it's gone. But like my impression is that if you were to add up like all the hours that get spent on programming and divide them up into buckets, like I think those buckets, my, my impression is that those buckets are like bigger than the other buckets, if that makes sense. So another common mistake that technology is trying to go mainstream make is they try to address too big of a market. So like it's actually a feature if the market that you're trying to address is not too big, because then it's easier to corner that market. It's easier to build technology that is the best in class for a smaller market. In fact, like one of the very specific pieces of advice the book gives is that you want to address a market that is roughly as large dollar-wise as what you expect your annual profits to be. So like if your goal is like a 3 million run rate for a startup, right? Then you want to address a market that's roughly a few million dollars large. And you want to corner that market. A classic example, like, you know, in cybersecurity space, a very big mistake many startups make is like, oh, like this, there's like billions of dollars worth of market of like companies that need cybersecurity. Like you're not going to corner that. First off, that's not a market. Cybersecurity is not a market, right? That's that's an improper segmentation. Uh, even if it were, that would be too big. You'd never be able to corner it with a startup's budget. So right sizing your tech, your to a market that you can actually corner is like a very key thing you need to do. Now, an interesting like alternative approach is that there's a lot of languages that seem to be content with not being mainstream. So I look at like like Clojure, Elixir, and Elm. I think would all be languages Pascal, that avoid success at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, but I mean, like I, I hear about languages that are not mainstream, and you know maybe they would like to be, but but that are nevertheless like you know, popular enough to have like healthy, self-sustaining communities where people are happy using that technology. And like, you know, there's a couple of success stories here and there, but they're not like taking over the market. They're never going to be like a top three, top five, most popular language for that particular use case. And, you know, that's, that's not, it's not like that's a bad thing, right? I mean, I, I know like in Brazil, there's like uh, this, this one company um, that, that, now has employees, I think if I remember this right, this is Nubank, uh, they employ the creators of both Clojure and Elixir. I mean, so there is one very prominent downside of being in a non-mainstream language, which is uh, career development and pay. Because like, let me use Haskell as an example, right? It's not like companies will pay Haskell developers less than the equivalent developers. It's, It's not that. It's just that because there are fewer jobs available, there are fewer opportunities to to job hop, and job hopping is one of the primary sources of of, of promotions and increases in pay. So you end up paying a, a significant hit over the course of a career when you would build your career around a non-mainstream technology. Yeah, I think that's fair, although at the same time, I also think if you want to optimize for salary, like technology is off the table. Like that's you can't optimize for both of those at the same time. You gotta like hopefully if you if it's like your goal to optimize for salary and ha- make the most money as possible, good luck if you also care about what technology you're using. Because <laughs> there's plenty of paths where it's like, I mean, you just got to go with uh, whatever whatever pays the best. 
But of course, I mean, I, I also, at the same time, I understand that like, you know, some people are saying, well, well, I would like to make more money and, you know, maybe I do or don't care about enough about the technology I'm using to, you know, take that on as a trade-off when I'm considering, uh, like my long-term career development. But yeah, I mean, I, I think something that people are continually surprised when I mention this is like, you know, no red ink, we use Elm on the front end and, uh, increasingly Haskell on the back end, but like that's been our number one way of hiring people for a long time. Like we're not that big of a company, we're like 150 people, you know, like a, I don't know, less than a third of that is engineering. And so it, it's not like, uh, you know, we can offer like the highest salaries or the best benefits or, you know, the most prestige, but like what we can offer is really nice technologies. And that's, that's kind of been our pitch. And that's been enough for us to be, you know, like hiring really great people, but other companies, you know, if, if you're using like, you know, react and like Java, um, there's millions of companies that, that are using those. You have so much competition in terms of like, you know, it, it, like really great programmers. If they're using those technologies, like what do you have to offer them? I mean, kind of your only options are either like crank up salary higher and higher and uh, good luck. I mean, if you're able to afford that, you know, that's more power to you, but there's this very surprising thing to a lot of people that like, yeah, you can hire better people as a company if you're willing to use non-mainstream technologies because there are plenty of people out there who actually do have that preference who are like, yeah, I, I know that like if I were using this technology, I could, you know, jump jobs more and like, you know, ratchet up the the salary, but I don't care as much about that as I care about like my day-to-day happiness and my day-to-day happiness depends in part on what tools I'm using. So I value that enough to go take a job at a company that's not the biggest, that's not the most prestigious or the highest paying because I want to use those technologies and there just aren't that many companies offering that. So in that sense, like it's, there's actually a very strong incentive for companies to adopt non-mainstream technologies and yet they don't. (laughs) Yeah, I think like Paul Graham introduced this idea in his, I think it was called the Python Paradox essay. Back then, Python was the the hip language. Right, of the it was day. non-mainstream, yeah. And you had a selection bias for people who were like very kind of self-taught or people who were just like coasting on their career, basically. Like people who are like actually like, I don't know what the term I'm fishing for is, but like dr- driven people. So like you, if you hired Python programmers at the time, you were more likely to get very driven programmers because they were willing to use something that was not a mainstream. Yeah, and I, I think um, maybe a lot of companies think that that was kind of like overblown or like, I mean, I don't know, not in our experience. That seems like it's, it's just, it's, I I actually do not understand how other companies hire people because the thing that I've seen work more effectively than anything else is using non-mainstream technologies. And then like, (laughs) and like actually using them, not just, you know, like, Oh yeah, we got like one service in that, you know, but like, no, it's like, this is like our main thing. (laughs) So that has been my own experience. So like I I lead a, a Haskell and Nick's team and we have no issues hiring. Every time we open up a position, we get like, I don't know, like maybe at least 20 applicants for it, sometimes like 50. But at the same time, that like that is not the experience of other, like when I compare notes with other Haskell engineering managers, sometimes they have great difficulty hiring for their teams. So like it can be, it can vary a lot from company to company or industry to industry. I think like part of the reason why we have a little bit more success than other teams is because like in Haskell in particular, like a lot of that work is in like the the fintech or blockchain space. And a lot of people are like, or, or, or defense or finance in general, a lot of people are kind of like, eh, I don't really want to be doing that. <laughs> Whereas our company is, is cybersecurity and 
people have fewer issues with that, for example. I forgot about that. Yeah. So like we're an ed tech company. And so like sometimes, you know, like obviously like one of the standard questions that like recruiters will ask is like, okay, you know, why no red ink? Why did you decide to apply to us? And a, a pretty common answer we'll get is like, well, I want to use like Elm and Haskell and I don't want to do blockchain. So here mm-hmm. I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and which I guess reinforces the point of like, so few companies are, are taking advantage of this, like of, of the, like using non-mainstream technologies to hire, which is, often what what companies will simultaneously cite as like their biggest challenge is hiring (laughs) and you know the answer is right there but a lot of them don't want to go for it apparently which i mean yeah that's good for us so i selfishly i should i shouldn't be trying to change anyone's mind about that but (laughs) it reminds you like way back early in awake's history we also used pure script at work too but we didn't always use pure script so we originally used javascript and then uh, one of our UI developers wanted to introduce PureScript at the time. And we were small. Like the UI team was, I don't know, like maybe three people. My memory is, is bad. And like one of, the, and one of the people in upper management was like, okay, but like, you know, let's say we adopt PureScript and then suddenly like we we blow up as a company. I mean, we, we grow as a company. And now we need like, you know, to hire like 40 or 50 UI developers. What do we do? Can we hire like 40 or 50 PureScript developers? And like everybody's response was like, we certainly hope we don't get to the point where we need to hire 40 or 50 <laughs> developers because that would be a huge mess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, so let's say that you did need to hire 40 or 50 developers on you know short notice and you're using you know JavaScript or whatever. Do you think that's going to go great? Like you're, you're, you're hiring 40 or 50 JavaScript developers. Like what's the plan there? Like it's not like just because there's more people using JavaScript than there are using PureScript that like, oh yeah, this is going to go great because we chose JavaScript, like if that happens, like I think you should think that through a little bit further. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also generally, like when it comes to growing a company, I'm very much on the side of like, it's better to vertically scale developers than to horizontally scale by hiring. Like same thing with just like architecture in general. Like I'm always in favor of vertical scaling over horizontal scaling. Because in my experience, you get like much better efficiency that way. After a certain number of points with developers, like you're not just getting diminishing returns, you're getting negative returns on each new developer you hire due to like, you know, social friction, politics, uh, communication overheads, lack of coherence. And a lot of organizations just don't recognize that cost. And eventually you just get past this, what I call like a complexity event horizon, where every attempt to make things better actually makes it worse by an even greater degree. (laughs) I think that definitely depends on how interconnected the projects are. Like, for example, if you have like, you're like, we want to build out this new feature that has very small numbers of integration points with our existing feature set, then like hiring new people and having them work on that new feature, I think is probably going to go pretty well. On the other hand, if you're like, we have this huge thing, everything's connected to everything else, and we just want to go faster. Let's throw more people at it. I think that's probably not going to go great. Well, like there is a benefit to things being interconnected. And I think one of the biggest reasons why you want to have the whole organization on the same page is for paying down technical debt. Because you think about it, like if you have like 10 teams, each using their own stack, there's very little organizational incentive to improve developer tools because you don't get you will you won't get very lot of leverage out of it. Maybe it'll only help like one or two teams at best. Whereas like if everybody's using like the same stack, same tool, same CI, same architecture, then you get then there's a greater incentive to actually pay down technical debt. That's a great point. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for like within a particular organization or a particular project, like having consistency means that you get a bigger multiplier effect whenever you do something that can be reused or, or can be used across everybody. Interesting stuff. Anything else we should uh, make sure to talk about before we wrap up? I can't think of 
Well, actually, well, this is more of an experimental project. One of my projects I'm, I'm working on, and I'm going to write up a blog post about this soon, is is related to, so, so sorry, let me back the two projects. So one is an older project called Grace. It's inspired by Doll. It's basically like kind of like Doll with the type inference. But the key thing about Grace is it's designed to be easy for people to fork and customize to their needs. I want to make it as easy as possible to build their own functional programming language. Oh, cool. And uh, second thing related to that, so if, so if you're if people who are interested in that, just search for like Fall from Grace in GitHub, and that will you'll find the project. And the second thing is that I also just recently built a website called uh, TryGrace.dev. So T R Y G R A C E dot D E V, and uh, that's kind of like a live try it in your browser page. It has some like cool features. But one of the coolest features about this page that, that not even Doll does, because Doll has a live demo on the Doll website too. But the cool thing about this Grace demo is that it will convert any Grace expression into idiomatic HTML. So what I mean by that is, for example, let's say you give it like a list of bools, it'll turn that into an HTML list of checkboxes. Like it'll be checked if it's true, unchecked if it's false. If you give it a function, it will turn that into a reactive web form. So if I put in like the function, you know, x to x plus one, it'll create a form with an input for a numeric input for like x. And then as you update that numeric input, the output will be then whatever that was, but plus one, for example. Wow, that's cool. I have not heard of a, a language, let alone on a, on a website doing that. That's very cool. And so the reason I bring up this topic is, is it's part of like this bigger project or vision of mine, which is that like, I feel very strongly that where programming will be going is kind of like something like, you know how like an HTML like you have the concept of CSS where you separate styling from like the semantic content of the web page, right? So you can have like the content and you can then like style however you please. And I feel like there needs to be something like that, but for programming, meaning that like, I would like to see more websites implemented literally as just pure functions. And then you just have a, a CSS, which takes that pure function and renders it into like an interactive web page, like, like the format example I gave, for example. I call that like the real semantic web. You literally, instead of having a server, you just have a website which just serves a functional expression, and the client will download that expression and just turn that into like a useful web page. We can like, you know, display that as data or forms, depending on what what is the exact styling. Wow. Okay, this sounds like we could easily talk for an hour just about that. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to sometime in the future. Very cool. Okay, so trygrace.dev. Yes, that's where people that's can correct. try that out. Awesome. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think that's it for me. Awesome. Well, Gabriella, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And yeah, maybe in the future we could talk more about this new idea of semantic web. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs>